1931, the Superstition Mountains, east of Phoenix, Arizona. Adolf Ruth has been missing for six months. He left the ranch of Tex Barley in June on a mission to find riches that would last him a lifetime. The next time anybody saw him, all they'd find would be his skull, with bullet holes in it. At Barclays Ranch, he said he'd learned the location of a mine, long lost. Somewhere in the perhaps aptly named Superstition Mountains lay Peralta Mine, the fabled mine where German immigrant Jacob Waltz supposedly found over $250,000 worth of gold, and where it was said there was even more still undiscovered. Anyone who finds it would be the richest man in America. But Barclay knew the land. The Superstition Mountains were no joke, a tough trek for an experienced explorer. This Ruth called himself a treasure hunter, but he was 66 years old, and the summer's sun in the desert was punishing, as were the bitter cold nights. He pleaded with Ruth to turn back, to forget this foolish dream, but Ruth was undeterred. This wasn't Ruth's first dance with a lost mine. Searching for the Pegleg Mine in California, he'd fallen and badly splintered one of his legs, needing a cane to walk and metal pins in his legs. It seems that the states had a habit of apt names at the time. He'd learned of the location of Peralta Mine from his son. Erwin Ruth had saved one Pedro Gonzalez from some serious legal troubles. Eternally thankful, Gonzalez, who was supposedly related to the fabled Peralta clan, gave an antique map to Erwin who passed it to his amateur explorer father. So, Ruth set out for a two-week expedition to find the mine. When he wasn't heard from, they searched for him. In December of 1931, a skull was found in the mountains, and after identification by a well-respected doctor, it was determined to be Ruth's. The bullet holes came from either a shotgun or a rifle, fired at point-blank range. An execution, or an ambush. Then in January, the rest of Ruth was found. Scattered bones and personal effects. No cartridges were missing from his pistol, and in his checkbook he'd written Veni, Vidi, Vici. Although he'd claimed to have found the mine and left a detailed description of it in his note, his map was gone. The Arizona authorities ruled the death either heart disease, heat stroke, or dehydration. This did, however, fail to account for the obvious bullet wounds to the head, and as such it was roundly ignored by the vast majority of Arizonans and Americans, and the story spread like a wildfire. But Ruth wasn't the only one to disappear in search of this lost glory. Since his death, several others and suspicious events have been recorded. One prospector was found without a head in 1940. Another explorer claimed to have been shot at by a sniper and hypothesized it was the same man who'd killed Ruth. In 2012, a man's body was found wedged into a crevice in the Tonto National Forest, three years after he'd set off in search. The year before, three other sets of remains, thought to be three Utah men, also lost searching for the mine, were found. It's been in TV shows, books, plays, movies, cartoons, comics and podcasts. It's all over pop culture, and the name resonates with people from around the world. It's even got its own national park named after it, where, interestingly, gold prospecting is forbidden. Perhaps more than that though, it's of the greatest examples of a real-life cautionary tale. All that glitters is not gold. In this double billing of Demystified, we're going to look at two such tales, this episode and the next, similar in many ways but from completely opposite ends of the earth. First, we look at one of the most famous treasure hunts in all of history, the search for the Lost Dutchman's Mine.
Today on Demystified, we're looking into the fact and the fiction behind the Lost Dutchman's mine. Now, a quick etymological note. The reason it's called that is it's named after the German immigrant from earlier, Jacob Waltz. Wait, I hear you say, Germany and the Netherlands are two separate countries. Well, that's right. But in early American history, the Germans were commonly called Dutch, for several reasons. Firstly, Germany wasn't a country. The Netherlands also went through various different name changes. And there was a misunderstanding of Deutsch, the German word for German. That's why a lot of Mennonite communities that came from Germany were called Pennsylvania Dutch, because of the Dutch-Deutsch misunderstanding. But back to the matter at hand. For those who live outside of the American cultural sphere, this might trigger some distant memories of maybe a cartoon or a TV show or a book, but not much else. So we'll get into the history of it. I say history, there are several different stories. I'll start with the most common one. In 1810, Jacob Waltz was born in Württemberg, in what we would now call Germany. He immigrated to the United States in 1848 and moved out west, settling in Arizona in the 1860s, where he'd lived most of his life. He took up mining and prospecting, as many did in the West. Here's where things get strange, though. The records of this historical figure of Jacob Waltz showed that he had little success in either of those endeavours, mining or prospecting. We also have some accounts, however, that show that he periodically came into enormous sums of gold, which he then sold to the US Mint, with one report showing that by the 1880s he'd sold over a quarter of a million dollars worth. That's just shy of six and a half million dollars in modern money. Whether the claims of the gold prospecting were true or not, he did have money coming in from somewhere and he was able to build himself a farmstead. However, in a series of floods that swept Arizona in 1891, his farmstead was destroyed and he contracted pneumonia. As he was nursed on his deathbed by one Julia Thomas, an acquaintance, he supposedly told her of the location of the mine where he'd found all of his gold, and where there also supposedly remained enough to make her rich beyond her wildest dreams. Then he died on the 25th of October, 1891. So Thomas decides, as one would, to look for the mine. In September of 1892, the Arizona Enterprise, a local newspaper, was reporting that Thomas and several others were searching for the mine. But they never found it, and Thomas and her partners resorted to selling copies of the map to the mine for $7 apiece. After that, the Lost Dutchman's Mine, as it came to be known, could have very simply passed into Arizona folklore. But then, Adolf Ruth went looking for it and met a very mysterious fate. Killed by someone, that's for sure. If he died of any other cause, then somebody shot him and he was already dead. Some say he shot himself, but his weapon was fully loaded, so he'd have had to have shot himself in the back of the head, buried the fired cartridge, reloaded, and then died. Moreover, his claim to have found the mine was even more tantalising, coupled with the fact that the map he'd been using and had shown off to Barclay was missing. He'd written detailed instructions on how to find the mine, but despite this, it came to nothing. One interesting perspective was that the story ended up, through a trick of history, becoming famous. At the time, the Great Depression was running America ragged. Every news article was about how bad things were and how much worse they were going to get. So along comes this tantalising story about how a treasure hunter was killed in his quest for fortune and glory, perhaps by a rival, perhaps by someone guarding the mine. The Arizona authorities' piecemeal response to his death also intrigued people. He was, according to the expert that examined his skull, very clearly shot. So why had they ruled his death one due to natural causes? Why no investigation? Why no inquest? Whatever the truth was, the story was just what people needed to take their minds off the ensuing depression, and it exploded in popularity. Thus, the mystery, and supposed curse, of the Lost Dutchman's Mine was born. Then there's the other stories. In the 1940s, the headless body of James A. Cravey, a prospector, was found in the Superstition Mountains, 
he had supposedly set out to find the Lost Dutchman's mine. In 1945, John Griffith Clemenson, writing under a pen name, published a book, Thunder God's Gold, about his search for the mine. In it, he reported he'd been shot at by a sniper, whom he dubbed Mr. X. Worth noting, by the way, this was Clemenson's claim, unverified by anyone else, of course. The alternate explanations are many, and why would the sniper shoot Ruth at point-blank range, but then take a long-distance shot at Clemenson? In 1961, George Conrad Shorty Mueller to his friends told his friends in the Phoenix area that he'd found the mine. He claimed that he needed help removing the gold from the cache and asked two friends to accompany him back to the area around Weaver's Needle, a local landmark. Around two weeks later, on January 1st, 1962, Shorty Mueller died of a heart attack. Now I know what you're thinking. A heart attack? What does that prove? Nothing. But like Tutankhamun's curse, people immediately associated it with the idea that going after the mine brings you an expedited end, one way or another. In late 2009, 35-year-old Jesse Capen went missing in the Tonto National Forest. His campsite and car were found abandoned shortly afterwards. He was known to have been obsessed with finding the mine for several years, and had made previous trips to the area. His body was found in November of 2012, wedged into a crevice. It was covered on the programme Disappeared, mentioning other cases as well, in an episode entitled The Dutchman's Curse. This is one of the many deaths and disappearances that fed the idea of a curse. Granted, this is more suspicious than Shorty Mueller's heart attack, but each time something bad happened to someone searching for the lost Dutchman's mine, the mythos only grew. Then, in July of 2010, hikers Curtis Merworth, Ardian Charles and Malcolm Meeks went missing in the Superstition Mountains looking for the mine. Merworth had become lost in the same area in 2009, requiring a rescue. On the 19th of July, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department called off the search for the lost men. They presumably died in the summer heat, and in January of 2011, three sets of remains believed to be theirs were recovered. So, it seems that many attempts have been made over the years at finding the Lost Dutchman's Mine, and many attempts have met their share of sticky ends. But this isn't the only telling of the mine story. In fact, there's several. In one telling of the original story, the Peralta family, a Mexican family living in Arizona in the 1840s, finds an Apache gold mine and a massacred for the secret. Then a man called Dr. Thorne tends to a wounded Apache and, as a reward, is taken, blindfolded, to the mine and given as much gold as he could carry. The thought behind the name Peralta, however, might relate back to Pedro de Peralta, the governor of Spanish New Mexico in the 1600s, thus meaning that a lot of places in Arizona and things in Arizona bear the name Peralta. The idea that a Peralta family ever had land in or near the Superstition Mountains is widely disputed. Some say the King of Spain granted them it back in the 1600s, some say they never existed. This didn't stop an Arizona con man named James Revis, also called the Arizona Baron, from pulling off an enormous swindle under this pretense, however. The plan was this. Under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the Gadsden Purchase, the US was legally obliged to recognise land grants given by the Spanish or Mexican governments in territory that was now American. Rebus met a man named Dr. George M. Willing Jr., who claimed he'd been sold a land grant encompassing three million acres of Arizona by a Miguel Peralta. Whilst Willing apparently found out that the claim was worthless and he lost the $20,000 he sunk into it, Revis took the idea and ran with it, flogging subgrants and investment proposals long after Willing's death in 1874. In the course of the con, Revis made $5 million in promissory notes and cash. In today's money, that's over $160 million. But the scheme fell apart when his claim was dismissed by a survey report. Revis attempted to sue the US government over this, but they countersued him and ended up investigating and discovering the depths of his fraud. 
He spent two years in prison and died in 1940 in Denver, Colorado, buried in a pauper's grave. But what Revis's life and cons show is the powerful effect that the promises of these riches could have on people. It's the basic premise of every con trick in existence. You promise someone the moon and they'll fall for it. I could do a whole episode on famous cons throughout history, but what I'm trying to impress with this is the tantalizing nature of the Lost Dutchman's mine. Whether those buying into the grants had heard of the supposed mine, Revis's sentences were in 1896, four years after the reports of the search for the mine had first surfaced, or were just gold-hungry for the potential of three million acres of Arizona real estate, the motive is the same. Now we get to the theories, though, the meat on the bones of this story. Is the Lost Dutchman's mine real? Well, the evidence isn't good. For all of those stories, the science doesn't seem to lie. Geological surveys have shown that the chances of there being any gold veins at all of any kind of substantial value in the Superstition Mountains are basically zero. The rock there is igneous in nature and unlikely to house any mines of any potential value, at least in gold. This doesn't, however, totally dismiss the idea. Some stories do mention that the mine is actually an elaborate cave system, a cache of gold stored by the Peralta family, and thus the story could still hold up. If that's the case, though, how could Jacob Waltz have made any money off of it? It seems to be that either he had fingers in other pies, or the reports of him making no money from his prospecting are more valid than those of his massive sales of gold to the US Mint. Waltz could have been finding gold elsewhere, other mines all over the place. This doesn't explain, then, why he told Julia Thomas that it had all come from one mine in the Superstition Mountains. What does it all add up to? Well, let's go analyse it. And here's my analysis. Is the Lost Dutchman's mine real? Probably not. The evidence just doesn't support it. The stories are too ragged, the details are too fuzzy. Each time we think we've got a concrete thread of the history, another loose end appears. However, I would say there's definitely something to this mystery. Just because the mine itself isn't real doesn't mean that something didn't inspire it. Maybe there is a cache of gold hidden somewhere. Maybe old Jacob Boltz did have a source for his treasure, and maybe the Lost Mine is where he stored his riches. The problem with the Lost Dutchman's Mine is so much of it seems to be historically true that it's hard to tell what is and what isn't. We're almost certain Jacob Waltz was a real person. Adolf Ruth was real, and his death really was a big deal in 1930s America. The legends surrounding the supposed Peralta family run deep in Arizona. They pop up all over the place. And all of those other people who died in search of the mine, for the most part, can be shown to be real. So it's clear there's something there, but not enough to say that the Lost Dutchman's mine is itself real by any stretch of the imagination. But you know what is very real? The 8,000 people a year who go looking for it. It even attracted former Arizona Attorney General Robert K. Corbin, so clearly the natives are into the story too. One 1977 estimate indicated that the Lost Dutchman's Mine is six times more popular than the story of the Pegleg Mine, the object of Adolf Ruth's earlier desires. That's in terms of printing and citing of the name of the story. But this is the first case study in our lesson that all that glitters is not gold. The old adage whose common use means that just because something may glitter or seem valuable or attractive, it may end up not being what you were looking for. It may seem an obvious lesson to some of the more sceptical listeners out there, but clearly thousands of people head for the Superstition Mountains with dollar signs in their eyes every year. It's a sentiment that possessed the subjects of some of our previous episodes, from Sir John Franklin to Percy Fawcett, they all went off into the wilderness in search of something. Was it money? Fame? Glory? 
or simply an unending curiosity that could never really be satisfied. And even if you know the lesson that all that glitters isn't gold, you may go out into the unknown anyway. It's probably a good thing that we do, really. If everybody was paralysed by the fear that something might befall them upon leaving the house, we'd find ourselves in a permanent state of self-imposed lockdown. That ambition that drives us to search for the proverbial gold is vital to the human experience of exploration. After all, the failure of one expedition may end up inspiring another one to success. It's important to temper your ambitions with clarity, though, otherwise you may end up like those explorers who go off in search of the Fountain of Youth, El Dorado, the Lost City of Zed, or the Lost Dutchman's Mine, missing or dead, with nothing left but weathered, broken bones. So when you commit yourself to that task, whatever it may be, ask yourself always if you're doing it for the right reasons, and whether what you stand to gain is more than what you stand to lose. Adolf Ruth thought that the risk was worth it, and look where he ended up. As did all the others who searched for the mine, only to find that there was no gold in the Superstition Mountains. Sometimes they really do hit the nail on the head with the place name. Moral of the story? Moderation is key, which is a good golden rule of life in general, really. Allow your curiosity and ambition to take you to places, but don't let them drive you off the cliff. We'll see next time what that unchecked ambition did for another band of explorers, a world away, in search of their own lost fortune. A word of warning for you, then. You'd better run. You'd better take cover. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod for all the latest updates, and support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month to help the show grow. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>